As a child growing up in the Catholic Church, I was always deeply impressed by the religious attire that was worn by the priests. It wasn't just the clerical collar that caught my attention, but our priest, who was also a monsignor, wore very elegant robes. One in particular comes to mind when I think about Monsignor Dolan. It was a long forest green robe that barely skimmed the ground, and a hem of gold stitching all around, and a matching stole that went over his shoulders. And there was a large golden cross embroidered on the back, and on the front was embroidered the letters IHS. And as the Mass began, a procession made its way toward the altar. First it was the acolytes, and then the Eucharistic ministers, and then, of course, finally, Monsignor Dolan. And the entire Mass had an air of holy reverence. The hushed silence as they approached the altar, the incense, the large golden cross being held up on a pole for all to see. And surely the garments that the priests wore separated them from the common people. These were holy men. They stood out as being, at least to my young impressionable mind, closer to God. Now there was a similar kind of thing going on in the first century in Judaism. The religious leaders were very much set apart from the people. Their reverence was shown by what they wore and how they prayed. There was a class of religious leaders in Israel that bore an almost celebrity status. These men were close to God and their piety was observable. And all the people believed it. And while those outward religious displays may have impressed the masses, They never impressed Jesus. From his perspective, the one who sees the heart of man, religious garments merely hide what's really there. Sinners in need of the grace of God. I've stated it many times before. I probably said it even recently. But religious people people who have not been inwardly transformed are just sinning against God in a different way. They may not be found in strip clubs or the local bar, but their sins are still great in the eyes of God. In fact, if you read through the Gospels, you'll see proof of this. Jesus was patient with prostitutes. He dined with the notoriously sinful tax collectors. He can be found interacting with the riffraff of Israel, but never did he tolerate the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Never did he tolerate those who engaged in religious sins. Theirs, he said, is the greater condemnation. Rather than being closer to God because of devotion to their religious system, they were actually further from Him. These religious leaders masqueraded as holy men, and yet they hid their true selves by their outward appearance. Rather than glorifying God through their service, they misrepresented the truth about God 
and at the same time, the truth about themselves. And because of this, Jesus had no patience for their hypocrisy. Now, Jesus has spoken about this subject many times. He warns that this is a very dangerous sin for us, and so the warnings are many throughout the Scriptures, and interestingly enough, it is this sin in His final discourse to the public that He warns about once more. His final words to the people are what we might call religious warnings. Now, all Scripture is profitable for you for teaching and instruction, and I think this text is relevant to us in at least two ways. First, so that you understand how false religious teachers operate. And second, to beware that you do not practice these same things yourself. So as we look at this text, be mindful of how these false teachers operate, but also be mindful that you do not fall into these same sins. So just to review where we've been in Luke, we saw that Jesus had several encounters with religious leaders. They were looking to trap Him before the people, and so they tried to do this by posing some controversial questions. They knew the crowds were there. They wanted to discredit Him in the midst of the crowds, and so the Pharisees approached him and tried to trap him by asking, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And of course, we saw that Jesus knew what they were doing and he answered them in such a way that all of their mouths were silenced. Their attempt to trap him failed. After this, the Sadducees tried their hand at it, and they proposed an absurd hypothetical situation about multiple marriages and resurrection. And again, Jesus answered in such a way as to leave them without a defense. Then, if you remember, he turned the tables and asked them a question. It was his turn to ask the questions, and this time he asked them, how can the Messiah be both David's son and David's Lord? referencing Psalm 110. And his point was that the Messiah is going to be more than just a political leader who delivers Israel from Gentile oppression, but he would be the very God of the Old Testament. He would be the God whom David worshipped. And so that was the context, and coming off the heels of that exchange with these religious leaders, we see his final words to the public. And since it is short, I will read it again in its fullness. Jumping in at verse 46. He says to all, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. So these are his final public words. And the remainder of Luke is going to focus on his interactions with his disciples and, of course, his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion. 
And his address to the people is a warning. And it's a warning against the scribes. So, who were the scribes? Well, we've seen them before, of course, in the Gospels. They are mentioned second only to the Pharisees. But who are they and what was their role? You might have a translation that doesn't record it as scribes, but it calls them the teachers of the law. So that's what they were. They were the lawyers in Israel. Now, they're not lawyers in the way that we think of them. These were men who were committed to the law of God. These were the architects of the doctrines of Judaism. And as their name scribe betrays, they were also ones who focused on copying and recopying the Scriptures, and they did so meticulously. So they would get to the end of a line, and they would not only count every letter, but they would count every space between every word, and they would add it up at the end to make sure to double-check that everything was copied perfectly. So that was one thing that they did, but they not only saw in, followed the uh, text transmission carefully, but they also explained what it meant. So to put it in a context we might understand better, the Pharisees were like the pastors of the churches. The scribes were like the theologians who write commentaries. So when Jesus says in His Sermon on the Mount, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, He is going after the doctrine of the scribes. These were men who would take the commandments of God and not only distort them to their own gain, but they would add to the requirements that God gave. So, these are the scribes whose goal supposedly was to preserve the Word of God, but Jesus said they nullified the Word of God because they clung to their traditions. And what we have in Luke is only a portion of the full denunciation that Jesus makes against them. That's why I had Richard read the very long Matthew 23, so he can, you can get the full picture of how many things he uh, goes after them for. But Luke's is boiled down to basically three indictments, and this is what we're going to look at today. The first indictment can be found in verse 46, and I will just give it a tagline to help us think about this. Religious hypocrites love to present themselves as holy. If you are the person, the kind that likes to take notes and you like to make the outline, the point number one of the outline would read, religious hypocrites love to present themselves as holy. <clears throat> Again, verse 46, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes. Now, I will state up front that what Jesus denounces here is not the wearing of robes for religious activities as if that is somehow inherently sinful. This is not a broad condemnation against Roman Catholics or Lutherans or certain Presbyterians who wear robes as part of their worship service. Religious garments are not the issue here. 
In fact, God originally prescribed religious garments to the priesthood in Israel, if you remember. If you go back to the Old Testament and you have all of these meticulous details about the tabernacle and the sacrifices, there is a bunch in there about what Aaron and his sons were supposed to wear. And he gets into detail about the materials they were, they were supposed to use, how the fabric was to be woven, the design of the hem that surrounds the fabric, etc., etc. So there's nothing uh, inherently wrong about the robes themselves, but it's the heart condition that is being hidden by those robes. And, in fact, in Old Testament Israel, it wasn't just the priests, but God had requirements of dress for all the people. In fact, he had them sew on tassels on the corners of their garments, and he had a very good reason for this. You don't need to turn there, but I will just read to you out of Numbers chapter 15. Starting in verse 38, God says to Moses, Speak to the people of Israel and tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a cord of blue on the tassel of each corner. And it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So you shall remember and do all my commandments and be holy to your God. Another place in Deuteronomy 22.12, God says to all the people, you shall make yourselves tassels on the four corners of the garment with which you cover yourself. So there was a significance in ancient Israel, not only for the priesthood to wear certain garments when they were acting in the role of priest, but even the people were to attach these symbols to their clothing for a purpose which was to remember God and His commandments. Okay? Their clothing was to point them to obedience and humility. So the scribes adopted these instructions from the law, and how and the, the scribes who liked to do everything to the extreme took it upon themselves to exaggerate all of these commandments so that people would look at them and see how holy and reverent they were. So they put tassels on the corners of their garments. It says in Matthew 23, that's one of the denunciations. And they would make them extra long so people could look and see how extra holy these men were. This is how the scribes approached everything in religious categories. If God says do this, they did it to the extreme. You remember if God told them to tithe 10%, and they said, let's not just tithe 10% of our income, let's tithe 10% of everything, even our spices. God says not to work on the Sabbath, make it a day of rest, and they came up with hundreds of regulations of what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath. What you can and cannot carry in your pockets on the Sabbath. How far a person can walk on the Sabbath. They took everything 
to the extreme. And the extreme in this case has a very selfish motive. It's to draw attention to themselves by masquerading themselves as holy men. And religious hypocrites love to present themselves as holy. Their robes and their tassels and their length were to be a testimony to their devotion and not anything that was to point themselves or anyone else to God. The tassels were to remind the wearer that they are to keep God's commandments, and yet it was used as a way to show off some kind of religious piety. So as we think about this, there's two points of application that come to mind And the first is, I think it's kind of obvious, but robes are not indicative of a devoted life. Robes are not indicative of any kind of holy life. You see religious leaders and their robes. I mean, you have Hindu and Buddhist and Muslim and Catholic And just because the Pope or the Dalai Lama wears some kind of religious garments does not mean that they are holy. We cannot take those things at face value. We cannot be impressed by a robe or a collar and think that that person has a life that matches that outward display. So don't be fooled by religious presentation. But I think another thing we can learn from This is that don't present yourselves in a way that draws attention to yourself, right? Don't present yourself in a way that is to draw attention to you and not to God. So you may not wear robes, you may not be tempted to wear any kind of religious garments, but you may be tempted to do something that makes it about you and not about Him. For example... You might be tempted to volunteer for something only because you want to be seen by others. They say, oh, look at Alice, always serving. Isn't she so holy? Isn't she so spiritual? Or you might try to show off your knowledge of Scripture. So instead of going to a Bible study to have fellowship and to learn and to grow in community, you just want to show off how much you know about the Bible. And so we can look at these sins of the scribes and say, tisk, tisk, tisk. But we have to look at our own hearts always and say, do I do anything like that? So the first point, religious hypocrites love to present themselves as holy. The second indictment by Jesus is that religious hypocrites love to be recognized. Religious hypocrites love to be recognized. And he uses three examples in verse 46. He says, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. So they love greetings. They love the best seats. They love the places of honor. Now, you can imagine in the first century Israel, 
how much these men would have stood out to the common folk. So you've got maybe a couple thousand people buzzing around the marketplace and they're buying their provisions for the week, let's say. And you have these holy men who are dragging along these robes and they have these headpieces and they look so pious and so holy. These are the scholars in the land. These are the PhDs. These are the doctors of holy things. And of course, people would take notice of them. And it would be customary to go up and acknowledge their presence. I had Richard read from Matthew 23 earlier, and in that, Jesus says they love to be called rabbi. Now, the Latin equivalent of rabbi uh, is docere, which means to teach, and it's where we get our English word doctor. And so they love the titles. They love to be called by the titles. John MacArthur, in his commentary on that passage, says, Rabbinical writings included detailed systems of protocol for such things as addressing, consulting with, and entertaining rabbis and scribes. They were held in such high regard that according to one passage in the Talmud, it was considered more punishable to act against the words of the scribes than against the words of the Scripture. So these were very important men in Israel. Their words... Their teachings were more important than Scripture, and they loved to be recognized. It was assumed that when the people gathered at the synagogue, they would have the best seats. It was assumed that if there was some kind of dinner or feast that they were invited to, they would be in the most prominent places, the seats of honor. These men considered themselves to be a really big deal. Contrary to this mindset, Jesus said back in Luke 14, when you are invited to a feast, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But one of the earmarks of religious leaders and false teachers, false religious leaders, is they love to be recognized as important. They are proud at heart, They have an inflated view of themselves and they believe that they have achieved a higher spiritual level than others and they should be recognized for that. Their position, their title, their gifting, they should be honored and they recoil at the thought of being treated as ordinary. Now, I think the takeaway for us, an application for us, would be to beware of wanting to be honored. 
Beware of that sinful desire in your heart to be made much of. You and I have an inherent desire because of sin that people speak well of us. Most of us even have a vain aspiration to be seen as valuable and important. And because of this tendency, we can fall in love with the praises of others. We can do things so as to be seen by others. It feels good to have people think we are special. It feels good to be recognized as important. Rather than looking for Jesus to say, well done, good and faithful servant, we want to hear the praises of others because it feels good. Now I will confess to you, early on especially, if I was ever invited to speak at a church or any kind of conference, I would always gauge how well I did by how many people were waiting to talk to me afterwards. And it felt really good and it really stroked my ego when I could see people lining up because they wanted to talk to me and tell me how the sermon spoke to them or how that one point I made God really used and and addressed them or just to thank me and say it was really clear and it was really well done and I have not heard that kind of approach to that text before. And oh, it would feel so good. And so, to humble me and to keep me from becoming proud, he gave me you on a weekly basis who never come and say anything to me. (laughs) I tease. I tease. But we must beware of this tendency of our hearts for the praises of men. Do not the Scriptures warn us in that way? So this is a condemnation against these men, but I think it also serves as a warning for us. Religious hypocrites love to be seen as holy, and religious hypocrites love to be recognized. Thirdly, religious hypocrites love to hide their sin through religious activity. Religious hypocrites love to hide their sin through religious activity. Verse 47. Speaking of the scribes, he says they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. False teachers and religious imposters do not care what God thinks. They are not concerned about what God requires. They are not concerned of fulfilling the law, which is loving God with all of their heart and loving their neighbor as themselves. They are always seeking to get what they want. And to do this, they often prey on the weak and the vulnerable. They take advantage of others because they have a twisted self-focus and they will do whatever it takes for them to get their heart's desire. The scribes had many crimes against the people. As I mentioned, Matthew 23, Jesus lists them. But Luke summarizes their evil by mentioning one of the most grievous practices 
and that is that they would make widows poor. Now, it is not entirely clear what Jesus is referring to here. There are four main views, and rather than list all of them for you, I thought the one that makes the most sense would be that these lawyers would take the houses of these helpless women as pledges of debt because they knew that they they could never repay it. Let me back up a second and just sort of explain the context here. Women in ancient Israel were totally dependent on their husbands. That just was the way it was back then. That was the culture. Women did not work. They were not skilled. And so... Once a woman's husband died, she lost her financial support, and if she had no sons to take care of her, she would be destitute. Truly a desperate situation. But if she had a house, at least she had some collateral, and so she would go to these lawyers in Israel who did more than study the Scripture. They oversaw things like this. And they could loan her money to survive. And they did this knowing that she could never repay it. And she would, in a sense, default on her loan. And they would swoop in and the property would become theirs. And they probably spun the whole thing and framed it to where they made them look good. They, hey, we were just trying to help this poor woman. And you know, we did all that we could for her. But she needs to pay back to the temple, to God's temple, what she borrowed. And therefore, we have to take her home because that is what she owes. And we're going to see the next account in Luke 21 next week to see how that is related to this. But I will save that for later. And so what the scribes were doing here and what Jesus denounces here is the opposite of what God would do for these women. If you remember, widows were to be protected in the Old Testament law. God always made provision for them as part of His commandments. He includes in His law provision for the most helpless members of society the sojourners and the orphans and the widows. You see that threefold mentioned over and over and over in the law. It was a kind of welfare system that God built into the nation that when uh, the men would glean their fields at harvest time, they were never to go back through it a second time because they were to leave whatever was left so that these a vulnerable people of society can come and they could survive. In fact, if you remember the book of Ruth, the whole story uh, revolves around that. So there were safeguards in place to protect these uh, vulnerable, defenseless people groups. And the Old Testament is full of descriptions of God's love for widows. Example, Psalm 68.5. He is the father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in His holy habitation. Deuteronomy 10.18 He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Deuteronomy 27.19 
Listen to this strong language. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. But here you have scribes who are lovers of money. They wear religious garments to hide their greedy hearts. They are more concerned about living a certain kind of lifestyle than they are about caring for the people suffering among them. And what makes it all the worse is it's all done in the name of God. It's this big religious cover-up. Jesus says, they devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. So here they are robbing a widow and they probably have this long uh, sanctimonious prayer asking God to provide, asking God to, to open up heaven and, and, and provide food and, and all the things that they would need when God put them in charge of the people to provide. We just had the Beast family stay with us for a week and I got a lot of opportunity to talk to Jeff about ministry in Kenya and he was talking about the religion of the Kenyans which is a, a mixture of animism and voodoo and Christianity and it's just, just this big jumbled mess of confusion. And prosperity is widespread in Kenya and false teachers abound because being a Bible teacher is a way to fleece the people. So if you have a title of pastor, it is a way for you to get rich. And so these charlatans with Bible in hand come to these poor villages and they promise them that God can lift them out of their poverty. And how is he going to do that? Well, you have to give money to the man of God. And you also have a nation that has a widow and orphan problem. And I asked Jeff why this is so prevalent, and it's twofold. One is because AIDS has ravished Kenya, and a lot of men die of AIDS because they are sexually promiscuous. And so uh, women are left widowed and children are left orphaned. But another reason is that Kenya is overrun by worthless men. And those are Jeff's words exactly. Worthless men. These are men who don't seek to marry. They only will hook up with a woman if it benefits them and they will live as married couples and if she gets pregnant and starts having babies, he will leave whenever he wants to. He does not feel any obligation to stay and provide for them. And so when he gets tired of whatever's going on, when it's not benefiting him anymore, he just up and leaves them. And so you have these women who are extremely poor and they are either left to work to feed the family or they're left to find another man who will most likely just do the same and the whole cycle repeats itself again. Many of these women cannot even afford to send their children to school, even though public school in Kenya is free, but there is a requirement that all the students in Kenya have to wear a certain uniform, which only costs a few dollars, but they don't even have 
that oftentimes, and so their kids won't go to school. And here comes this local Kenyan pastor with his big Bible, or here comes this health, wealth, prosperity teacher from the United States to hold a big outdoor conference, and their promises are that God wants them to be wealthy. Look how wealthy we are. Look how expensive this suit is. God, what God has done for me, God can do for you. And so they have to give whatever money they have left to survive on to these men of God. It's all a huge scam. And so these most vulnerable people of society are left starving to death and it's because these so-called religious men who live a lavish lifestyle off, off the backs of these poor, suffering people and it is disgusting to God. Disgusting. It's no wonder C.S. Lewis once said, of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. It's because it's all done under the guise of religion. They hide their sin with their religious activity. This is why in the Christian church, God's requirements for leadership, one is they must be able to teach, but all of the other requirements are character issues. Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, all lists of character issues. Can't be a drunkard, can't be an adulterer, can't be greedy, can't have anger issues. It's because a man's character will reveal what kind of man he is. And that is the most important thing. All those other things can be faked. Anyone can put on a robe with a cross on it and carry a Bible. Anyone can do that. Anyone can pray long, sanctimonious prayers that sound so holy and righteous. I was talking to a person about someone else who was not a Christian, and this person was arguing that that person is a Christian, and one of their proofs that he is a Christian is he quotes from the Bible. And my response was, Satan quotes from the Bible. So we must be warned of such people, and I think there's also an application for us as well. Do not use righteousness as a cover-up for evil. Do not bring the name of Christ into something that you know is not the will of God as some kind of place to hide. For example, you hate certain people groups and you hate them with all of your heart and you want them all to go to hell and you use your Christian faith to justify your hatred. Look what God says about this behavior. That is using Christ as a cover-up for evil. Or you go on deliberately sinning and you 
You say, God will forgive me. Isn't the grace of God wonderful? And you're a terrible witness to your coworkers because they know what you do every weekend. And yet you, you, you say, well, I'm, Christians aren't perfect, but they're forgiven. And it's a cover-up for evil. 1 Peter 2.15, Peter says, This is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. So, that's written to Christians. That means we could do that too. And we need to be warned in the Scripture not to do that. So, these are the earmarks of religious teachers. They love to present themselves as holy. They love to be recognized. They love to cover up their evil with religious activity. And Jesus is not finished with his denunciations. We're going to see a very interesting passage next week. And then the entire chapter 21 of Luke is going to be about God's judgment against that whole religious system. I think that is going to be a fascinating study. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, please keep us from these sins. Please keep us, Lord, that we would not fall into that carnal trap of giving lip service to God, but secretly practicing evil. Keep us, Lord, from putting our piety on display that we only behave in certain ways because we want people to notice us. Keep us from those sins, Lord. We thank You for Your Word, Lord, that instructs us and corrects us. I pray that You would impress this upon Your church, that we would truly live holy lives before You, not for the notice of our neighbor, not for the praises of men, but because we will have to give an account to You someday, Lord. And so we give thanks to You. In Jesus' name, Amen.